This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 152, Stupidity. I'm Hal Hammonds, and I am a citizen of heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. For all the kindergarten teachers out there who are annoyed with me already, stick with me. I'll get to you in a minute. The fact is, stupidity exists, and it's not tough to prove it. This week we will discuss the things the Bible calls stupid, and there are several of them. The behavior that makes you stupid, at least in the eyes of one author. The confusion over what is and is not a cuss word. And my weird obsession with playing games I don't understand. Let's start with what I've been preaching. All you need is a concordance to prove that stupid exists and that it exists in the Bible. I know that that word is a little bit tricky for some people. We'll come back to that a little bit later on in the podcast. But for right now, let's just demonstrate from the Bible that stupid is a thing. And it's a bad thing. And it's an avoidable thing. And if we don't avoid it, it can be a dangerous and even a tragic thing. I'll refer you to Psalm 94 and verse number 8, for instance. Pay heed, you senseless among the people, and when will you understand, stupid ones? He goes on to say, he who planted the ear does he not hear, he who formed the eye does he not see. It's talking about God's judgment, God's wrath against those people who are doing bad things, slaying widows and orphans, saying the Lord does not see. You need to do better than that. I like Proverbs 12, verse 1, where it says, he who hates reproof is stupid. That verse is telling us that stupidity tends to perpetuate itself. If you are a stupid person, you're going to be less inclined to listen to the people who are telling you that you're stupid, so you're going to wind up staying in your stupidity, unfortunately. Probably my favorite passage about stupid things is in Proverbs 30, verse number 2, where Agur, who has been contracted evidently by Solomon to give his say on what makes wisdom, he says, truly, I am the stupidest of all men. He is not worthy to comment on wise things. And if Agur and, by extension, Solomon are in that position, I suppose all of us, to one degree or another, are stupid. Thankfully, we have God to help us through this. And that brings us to the main point that I wanted to get at here. There are essentially two categories of stupid people in the Bible. There are the people who don't know, and there are the people who know and don't care. I'll go to Isaiah 19, verse 11, for the first category. In this context regarding the condemnation against Egypt, Isaiah writes, The princes of Zoan are mere fools. The advice of Pharaoh's wisest advisors has become stupid. How can men say to Pharaoh, I am a son of the wise, I am a son of ancient kings? Well, then where are your wise men? Please let them tell you, and let them understand what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt, going through verse number 12 there. Pharaoh's advisors have become stupid because They don't have the word of God. They have the word of their idols. They have the word of their false gods. If you don't have access to the things of God, if you don't have access to revelation, how could you be anything but stupid? And what a blessing it is that God has not left us that way. If we are stupid, we are stupid because of our own choice, especially in the current environment when anybody with a internet connection can get the Bible in any number of translations, any number of languages. It's not like it was back in the day. But even then, Acts 14, verse 17, God had told the people there in Iconium through Paul and Barnabas that the true God, not 
Zeus and Hermes, but the real God of heaven, the one who had created all things, had not left himself without witness in that he had given them rain and sunshine, that he had continually blessed them over and over again, enough where they should have known to reach out for God. He tells the Athenians something very similar in chapter 17, verse 27, that he's not far from any one of us. Truly, as Psalm 19, verse 1 has always said, the heavens declare the glory of God. It's a wonderful thing to know that God is, in fact, out there, that he is demonstrating himself to us. And if we have enough faith to look to the stars, to look to the seasons, to look to our own bodies, we can have enough faith to reach out for God, and he will manifest himself to us. Unfortunately, if he does manifest himself, and we do have access to his specific revelation, that does not necessarily mean we'll be dragged out of our stupidity, which brings us to the second category— And for this, I'll refer to Jeremiah 4 and verse 22. For my people, my people, the Israelites, for my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children and have no understanding. They are shrewd to do evil, but to do good they do not know. What a tragedy it is that people can be so clever about doing sinful things. They can come up with all kinds of devices. And yet, simply reading the evident Word of God and putting it to work in their life, they can't figure out how to make that work. And God is very consistent about this. Simply calling yourself the people of God is not adequate. We must do what He has told us to do. And that's true for Christians as much as it ever was true for Israelites or Jews. In Luke 6, verse 46, Jesus Himself says, "'Why call you me, Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say?' We have to actually put this knowledge to work in our lives. You can own 10,000 books and not be any more intelligent than you were before you ever got the books. You have to read the books. You have to actually put them to work in your life on an ongoing basis. Our parents used to criticize us for not being smart enough to come in out of the rain. Well, God is telling us to come out of the rain. He's telling us to abandon the life of the wicked people outside the ark and join Noah and his family inside the ark. You don't have to have a tremendously high IQ for something like that, but you do have to have God's will That's given to you, and you have to have your own will to pursue that will. That's up to us. This is what I've been reading. Carlos Cipolla wrote back in 1976 an essay entitled The Basic Laws of Human Stupidity. His contention is that there are four kinds of people. There are intelligent people, bandits, helpless people, and stupid people. Intelligent people are the ones who are able to derive benefits for themselves from the world that is around us in such a way as to increase the benefits that go to other people. This is intelligent, obviously, because if they can make other people happy, they can make other people content. It makes it more convenient for them to make themselves content. Everybody wins. That's the intelligent approach. Bandits are people who are good at deriving benefits for themselves from the world, but they are a net detriment to the world itself. They are stealing from the rich and giving to themselves, essentially. They are creating problems for other people, creating benefits for themselves. Helpless people are on the opposite end of the axis from the bandits. Helpless people are those who give and give and give and give. They are constantly supporting other people, but they have not figured out how to derive any benefits themselves. And so they wind up confused and perplexed and maybe a little whiny. They are good at serving, but they are not good at growing, at developing, at becoming the kind of people that they should be. 
And then there are the stupid people. The stupid people are a problem for everybody. They themselves are suffering. They cannot figure out a way to derive benefits for themselves out of the world, nor are they any kind of blessing to anybody else. They are a net drain on the entire system. Sapola's five laws, in summary, read like this. Number one, always and inevitably, everyone underestimates the number of stupid individuals in circulation. And it's important that you understand that in context, of course, because that just sounds needlessly cynical when you see it, apart from any kind of consideration of the terms here. But he's saying, basically, there are an awful lot of people out there who just don't get it. They are more of a problem than they are of a solution. Law number two says the probability that a certain person will be stupid is independent of any other characteristic of that person. And I found that interesting. He's saying there, it doesn't really matter how high your IQ points are. It doesn't matter where you were born, how many silver spoons were in your mouth when you were born. It's not about your background. It's not about your education. Some people just can't make the world work to their benefit or to anybody else's benefit. Law number three says a stupid person is a person who causes losses to another person or to a group of persons while himself deriving no gain or even possibly incurring losses. That's the definition of the stupid person. Number four says non-stupid people always underestimate the damaging power of stupid individuals. In particular, non-stupid people constantly forget that at all times and places and under any circumstances to deal and or associate with stupid people always turns out to be a costly mistake. We'll come back to that one in a second. And number five, he says a stupid person is the most dangerous kind of person, even more dangerous than the bandit. That's one person's judgment. You can take that for what it's worth. But I wanted to spend a little bit of time focusing on law number four here, the damaging power of stupid individuals. From a carnal perspective, from a worldly perspective, it would seem rather obvious that if I can limit my exposure to stupidity in the world, my world is going to get better immediately. Somebody says, well, sign me up for that. That sounds great. And to a certain degree, I think I agree. But here's the problem. We as Christians cannot limit our exposure to stupidity. And I would argue that nobody else can either. But especially for Christians, to a certain degree, it's our obligation to expose ourselves to stupidity because we're supposed to be lights in the world. And if being a light in the world means anything, it means bringing wisdom. It means bringing guidance, bringing information, bringing salvation. And surely if we are to bring it to anyone, we are to bring it to the ones who have no understanding, the ones who are living, if you will, in stupidity. If we can be lights in the world, if we can help people somehow grow out of their unfortunate circumstance that may not entirely be of their own making, then we can be a blessing. We can be of service to our neighbors, to our society, even to a certain degree. And let's face it, none of us is really as non-stupid, if that's a word. Maybe this is a bad context for me to be making up words, I don't know. But none of us is really as non-stupid as we would like to think. We need people who are wiser than we are. We need people who are more astute than we are, more observant than we are involving themselves in our lives, helping us through these difficult times. I couldn't help thinking of Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. And I take a lot of shots at the King James Version, but to be honest with you, the King James Version gets this exactly right. The New American Standard Bible reads here, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. Answer a fool as his folly deserves. 
that he not be wise in his own eyes. And that's probably a pretty reasonable explanation for the passage here. But the King James simply says, answer fool according to his folly. Do not answer fool according to his folly. The paradox there, the apparent contradiction is the whole point. This is one of the riddles that Solomon was talking about in the prelude to the book of Proverbs. There are going to be some aspects of our pursuit of wisdom that seem contradictory, that seem not to make any sense. The fact is there are going to be times when it would just be the stupidest thing possible to answer a fool. We don't want to have that conversation. We need to avoid that conversation, frankly, get out of it as quickly as we can if we find ourselves in the middle of it. And there are other situations where we absolutely need to answer the fool. As his folly deserves, the text says here in the NASB. It's vitally important for his safety, for his salvation, perhaps even, for us to get involved. It takes wisdom to know the difference. It keeps coming back to that. It keeps coming back to the idea of wisdom, of understanding. The more we steep ourselves in the things of God, the more wise we become, the more we climb out of this cesspool of stupidity. And that puts us in position to help people who are still mired in it. And it also helps us get in position to stay out of it so we don't get dragged back in. This is what I've been hearing. All right, I promised the kindergarten teachers I'd get around to this, so here we are. And let me be clear right off the bat. If you're a kindergarten teacher or a fourth grade teacher or a high school teacher or a college professor, as far as that goes, and you think that it's inappropriate to use the word stupid in your classroom, by all means, don't let the word stupid be used in your classroom. I'm not going to fight you on that. I offer you a word of caution, though. Whether you're talking about kindergartners or college students, it doesn't make any difference. If you tell people that they're not allowed to use a particular word for a particular concept, they will come up with another word. They might not use the word stupid, but they'll use the word idiot or dummy or whatever. They're probably inventing words as we speak to get around the rules that were laid down by their adult overseers. I'm not even upset about that. That's the way kids are. That's what kids have always been. I was that way when I was a little kid too. Go ahead and teach about the bad words. There's nothing wrong with teaching about the bad words. I have a better idea though. Teach general civility. If you teach children to be polite, if you teach them to be kind, if you teach them to respect one another, then the particular words that are chosen or not chosen take care of themselves. Now, obviously, that's a much easier solution to talk about than it is to actually practice. But hey, how's the whole banning the word stupid going for you anyway? I really think that we've gotten wrapped around the axle with regard to particular terminologies. If we can eliminate the word stupid, then we're going to have a civil society. That's getting the cart before the horse. You don't teach terminology. You don't teach buzzwords. You teach concepts. You teach principles. That's what God does for us. God is concerned about the terminology we use, certainly. That we're going to be judged by our idle words, Jesus says. But that's not at the core of our being. A Christian is not identified by his terminology primarily. After all, terminology changes, doesn't it, from century to century, from culture to culture, from language to language. 
What doesn't change is who Jesus wants us to be. And if we have our eyes on the prize, if we know who we are trying to be, and more to the point here, if we know who we are trying to encourage our children to be, then we can communicate that in a way that is effective and that will put them in position to succeed and then to teach the same kind of principles to someone else. Running away from problems, running away from ugliness is not necessarily the solution. Jesus says in Matthew 10 verse 16, as he sends adults, by the way, out into the world, that they're supposed to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And I think that's a great example for all of us as we go out into a sinful world. And it'd be nice if we were grown-ups. It would be nice if we were adult enough to properly appreciate what we hear, what we see, put them in proper perspective, learn how to give the benefit of the doubt and that sort of thing. Sometimes we don't have that option. Sometimes our children are forced to grow up a little quicker than we would have liked. The same principle applies. Be aware of what bad things are. Recognize them for what they are, whether it is hateful language, whether it is abuse, whether it is tyranny of some sort, whatever it happens to be. Know what bad things look like and avoid them the best you can. And if you have opportunity, maybe even fix them. Don't get caught up in them. You can be in a room full of stupid people who are using the word stupid over and over again and not become a stupid person. And more importantly than that, you cannot become a person who dislikes people, a person who is hateful to people. You can rise above that and be the kind of person God wants you to be, the kind of person that hopefully at least your parents and your brethren are wanting you to be. I urge parents and authority figures in general, when they're considering such things, to pick real monsters instead of convenient monsters. Understand what the problem actually is. The problem isn't that you have kids running around the classroom saying the word stupid. The problem is you have hateful children. Find the real problem. Deal with the real problem. Paul tells another adult essentially the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 3. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Find a problem that's worth dealing with. Find a windmill that needs tilting at. Don't just go off half-cocked fighting because something seems objectionable. Understand your situation. Understand your surroundings. And it wouldn't hurt to spend a little bit of time examining the motives of the people who are trying to drag you into these fights. We have leaders among the people of God here today, which will go nameless for obvious reasons, who have a not necessarily very well-hidden agenda of their own that are not trying to further the things of God ultimately. They are trying to further their own ends. Jude writes in verse 12 and following, These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars from whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. I'm not going to get into details of all those images, but basically it's people who are making as big a spectacle as they can so that they themselves will appear to be important. Tempted as I am to get into specifics of application here, I'm going to avoid that and basically just caution you to examine those who are trying to get you embroiled in some kind of huge fight. 
It may not be as simple as whether you are or are not standing for the truth. It may be a lot more like whether you are or are not standing with this particular teacher and his particular doctrine. Again, why is the serpent harmless as doves? Find the real enemy. The real enemy is the devil. Stand against the devil. Let all these pointless fights go. This is what I've been playing. In Aquasphere, you are a scientist trying to contribute to an underwater laboratory slash living environment. And since you're underwater, you can't do any work. So you have to program robots to do it. And so really, it's all about programming. You teach the robots how to build submarines so you can send more robots out there. You teach them how to collect gems, which will allow you to keep the points, whatever that's supposed to be in the game, money or expertise. It's a little difficult to tell. Anyway, but you need to collect these gems because if you don't collect the gems, you lose all the whatever that you've been trying to accomplish. And that's bad, bad news. You program robots to program other robots. You program robots to get rid of the octopods in the environment that apparently are trying to take the sea back for themselves or whatever. It's difficult to explain to you how bad I am at this game. If there's any game that makes me feel like a real idiot, this might be right up at the top of the list. Quite frankly, there are a lot of games that make me feel that way, but Aquasphere is a finalist, I'll tell you that. We got it out for the first time in a couple of years a few weeks ago, and my wife and daughter Kylie practically lapped me in this game. I hardly moved at all, and they're just doing all kinds of things. And they're trying to explain to me after the fact what I'm doing wrong, which is very frustrating because they tell me, you should have done this and that. That's what I was trying to do. I couldn't figure out a way to do it. I ran out of time. I ran out of energy. I ran out of robots, etc. There's always an excuse. It doesn't seem to apply to them. They're playing with the same parameters that I am, and they're doing just great. But here's the thing about playing games that I'm bad at. And trust me, there are a wide variety of games that would fit this category. I'm bad, but I want to get better. I'm bad, but I'm not discouraged. Kind of disappointed. A little self-loathing going on here. But I don't have to sit here and wallow, and I don't have to quit. I can get better, or at least I can try to get better. If something is enjoyable, and this is, then why should I engage in it? I find it fascinating to fix puzzles, especially the puzzle of my own behavior, trying to do better than I have been doing in the past. That's what keeps me engaged, not just in board games, of course, you saw this coming, obviously, but in my walk with Christ, finding a way to serve better, to study better, to pray better, to worship better. There's always going to be opportunity for growth. And if I get bogged down in the things I'm doing wrong or doing poorly, I'll never get out. But if I can stay motivated, if I can pursue a better way of doing things, then I can have hope. I can have encouragement. It's not about finishing on top. It's not about fixing all the problems. It's about staying engaged in the process and committing myself to something bigger than myself. How do you go about doing that? Well, learning the rules is a really good first step, obviously. Again, I've forgotten a lot of the rules about Aquasphere and especially the way to, to gain points. Would you be surprised how important the rules to how to gain points are in a game like this? This is why Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17, 
that all scripture is inspired of God and profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, adequate for every good work. This is what will give you the tools, knowing God's word, knowing what he is expecting out of you, how you go about achieving his objectives, how you please him, how you disappoint him, etc. Knowing the rules, knowing the scriptures makes all the difference in the world. Along the way, make sure you listen to advice from experts, including mom and dad, by the way, including grandparents and great-grandparents. 2 Timothy 1 verses 5 and 6 indicate that Timothy's mother and grandmother were key influences on him in early days. They set him on a course, a course that he didn't properly understand because he hadn't heard the gospel, neither had his mother or grandmother, but they were in position because they knew about the God of heaven. They knew about the coming Messiah. When Paul came to preach to them in Lystra, he was able to explain these things. They were able to receive it. And you continue to receive it. First Timothy chapter 4, verse number 6, for instance, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you've been following. Verse number 11, prescribe and teach these things. Verse 15, take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so your progress may be evident to all. Giving ourselves to this process, paying close attention, verse 16 says, to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. This is work that we're talking about. This is an effort. And if we can listen to mentors, Timothy had his family, he had Paul, you may have somebody also. By listening to those who have gone before, those who have survived the wars, we can find ways to do better than we have been doing. And through it all, of course, keep trying, keep giving the effort, no matter how well we do, no matter how much we may succeed or fail to succeed, as the case may be. Paul himself was still striving for that upward call of God in Christ Jesus, Philippians 3 verse 14. This is not about reaching a plateau and stopping or retiring or even pausing, really. This is about continuing to do better, continuing to learn, continuing to grow. And through this entire process, make sure that you find your joy. Make sure that you find your satisfaction. Whether you're succeeding or failing, it really doesn't matter that much. You can find a way to please God. You can find a way to grow your faith. You can find a way to find confidence in the things of Jesus. Philippians 2, verses 17 and 18, Paul, writing from a prison cell, writes, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my faith with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. There is a way that you can, in the midst of your failures, in the midst of your disappointments and your underachievement, to lean on the Lord, to lean on brethren, to redouble your efforts and make another effort the next day. And maybe you'll do better, and maybe you won't necessarily do better. But through it all, you are connected to Jesus, who is the advocate that we have, Jesus Christ the righteous, 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2 tell us, who will stand with us, stand by us, and help us through these difficult times. Perfection is not about this life anyway. Perfection is about the next life. And with Jesus' help, and with our brethren's help, and with the Bible's help, you and I are going to get there. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.halhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.